you for coming and checking out Real Talk Personal Finance. It's about to get real. Today, we are going to talk about health savings accounts, HSAs, not to be confused with some of the other accounts out there like flexible spending accounts, FSAs, and the like. We are specifically going to talk about HSAs or health savings accounts. Today, I have about five broad categories that we're going to cover and uh, we'll talk about some bullet points on each one. So the, the idea behind today's podcast is basically to just give you a general understanding and quite frankly some things that most people don't talk about uh, with regards to HSAs so that you can make the best decision for you and your family. So let's kick it off and get started with why you would versus would not consider a health savings account. And as the name implies, and as you might expect, your health would be one of those reasons. So if you are generally very healthy, your visits to the doctor or other medical facilities are very infrequent and you simply seek out care periodically, maybe you're on maybe one or two medications, you get a routine annual physical, something might come up from time to time, but again, you're generally very healthy. You would probably want to consider a health savings account if you have access to one, and we'll talk about eligibility here coming up in the next section. So that would be one item that you'd want to consider. Again, your health related to that would be your ongoing medical expenses. And then just around, you know, whether or not you're actually eligible for one of these. Um, well, we'll get into eligibility here in a second, but the other thing would be uh, emergency fund considerations. So we're not going to spend a lot of time today talking about emergency funds and what they are and different ways to structure those and how to use them. We'll do another episode specifically on that and some considerations around that. But let's just suffice it to say, uh, if your cash position is not where you would like it to be, if the idea of getting a medical bill in the mail for a few hundred dollars, maybe even a few thousand dollars in some extreme cases, makes you uneasy, the HSA is probably not for you. So it is a great tool that can be used very effectively. And there's a lot of debate, quite frankly, in the personal finance space and community about different ways to utilize these accounts. And we'll get into that a little bit towards the end. But I think that um, emergency fund considerations definitely come into play. So if your general overall financial foundation is fairly sound, you do have an adequate emergency fund in place. Um, then if you're just wanting, especially if you're just getting started with an HSA with a health savings account, um, you want to make sure those things are intact before you actually take the plunge. So another item that comes up a lot are tax considerations. And you'll often hear the HSA referred to as a triple tax advantaged vehicle, which it is. And it's actually better in most cases than a lot of people describe it to be. So first, what do, what do people mean when they say a triple tax advantage? Well, you're essentially contributing dollars pre-tax into this plan, assuming you're, even if you're not, but assuming you're doing this through your employer. And again, we'll get into a couple of specific numbers and eligibility here shortly. But assuming that that's how you're making your contributions, you're putting money into this health savings account on a pre-tax basis. Now, when most people hear the word pre-tax and on other types of contributions like retirement plans, and we're not going to really talk about retirement plans today, although there is one consideration that we're going to touch on at the end, um, and quite frankly, why I completely disagree with a lot of folks in the FIRE community about using this vehicle as a supplemental retirement plan. We'll get into that. But... Um, 
Unlike other contributions to other types of things like a retirement plan, the HSA will also save you on what's called FICA tax, or some people refer to it as payroll taxes. So that's kind of a big deal. And for those that aren't quite familiar, I'm not a tax expert. I don't really play one <laughs> on, on the podcast either, but there's some certain things that you need to talk about. And so for those of you that are working as an employee, like let's say you're a W-2 employee, you're eligible for benefits at work. One of those benefits is a high deductible health plan that you compare with an HSA, hence you're listening to today's show. When we talk about FICA tax, you are generally paying 6.2% in terms of payroll taxes or FICA tax on your earnings that goes towards the OASDI or basically Social Security, okay? And that will happen until you hit what's called the taxable wage base, which is well into the six-figure range. So for a lot of folks, they may not need to worry about that. Um, and then in addition to that, and there's currently no cap on this, you pay an additional 1.45% towards Medicare. Okay, so all in, you get your 6.2 and your 1.45. That's where we get the 7.65% payroll tax or FICA tax that you're actually saving on these contributions. So you're not paying that 7.65% tax on these contributions. You're not paying any federal tax on these contributions. And you're also not paying any state or local tax on these contributions. So when the money goes in, it is absolutely going in. Uh, pre-tax, unlike a lot of other things that are pre-tax, but you may still have to pay some FICA tax on. So a little side note there. The second part of the triple tax advantage is the fact that the funds in there will grow tax deferred. <clears throat> so for a lot of people, when they're just getting these accounts started, you're probably going to just accumulate the funds as cash, right? It's basically a bank account. But after you hit a certain threshold, and every plan is a little bit different, every provider that offers an HSA works these a little bit differently, but generally speaking, there is a fairly low threshold, usually a couple thousand bucks, that you have to accumulate in the account, after which you can choose to invest the funds above that threshold within that HSA if you'd like to. And all of the earnings, all of the growth, things like dividends and interest and capital gains and whatnot are all tax deferred. So you're not going to get a tax bill just because you invested some additional HSA dollars within your HSA plan and the value went up. You're not going to be taxed on that. So that's the second part of the triple tax advantage. And then finally, if you use the HSA for its intended purpose, and a lot of people are debating Exactly. Not so much what the purpose is, but the best way to utilize it for what, you know, what purposes you may want to utilize it for is that when the money comes out, assuming it's for qualified medical expenses, and you can do a simple Google search and find out what some of those things are. A lot of the providers will have lists out there. The funds come out completely tax free. Uh, there is no holding period in order to benefit from that. It's not like you have to have your HSA open for a certain number of years before you can do that. If you open one right away, your contributions go in right away, and all of a sudden you have a medical expense that's considered a qualified medical expense, and you want to use your HSA to pay for it or to reimburse yourself for the funds that you paid for that particular expense, you can do so absolutely tax-free. So that's the third part of the triple tax advantage when it comes to health savings accounts. Okay. Uh, let's see. So that's my first section uh, about why you would versus would not want to consider an HSA. And I'm sure there are other considerations. I'm trying to keep this episode fairly brief. I don't want to get too, too long. So we're going to just move along to the second part here. And that is criteria for an HSA eligible plan. So again, um, there are some numbers here that we'll go over if you're taking notes. First is going to be your minimum deductible. 
Your deductible is basically the amount of money that you would have to pay out of pocket, generally, before your health insurance plan kicks in. And I, I should start by saying there's always going to be exceptions to most of the items that are talked about in general. Um, and, and HSAs are no exception to that. But in general, um, that is, that's basically how that deductible is going to work. And the reason I say that, let's say, for example, you go in for your annual physical, right? You may not have an office copay or an office visit pay. Um, you may not have to pay anything at all. And so even though you're seeking services, those in a lot of cases are completely covered by your health plan. So. Just a small example there. But as far as the numbers go, you have to have, uh, if you're single or just enrolling yourself in the plan, the minimum deductible is $1,400 in the year 2022. And if you are on a family plan, your minimum family deductible is $2,800. That means that if your deductible on your particular health insurance plan is less than those numbers, then you would not be eligible to tie an HSA health savings account to that plan. On the flip side, there are some out-of-pocket maximums that would apply as well, where if your out-of-pocket maximums are more than these upcoming numbers, then you also may not be able to have an HSA with your health plan at work. And for a single person, that number in the year 2022 is 7,050, 7050. Uh, and for a family, it's $14,100. Okay. So, um, you know, those are some things to keep in mind. So as long as your deductible is at least $1,400 for single and your max out of pocket is no more than $7,050, you would have a HSA qualified high deductible plan. That's for a single person. If you're a family and your deductible for the family plan is at least $2,800, but your maximum out-of-pocket expenses are, are less than 14100 then you also would have an HSA-qualified high-deductible plan. So those are just some, some quick criteria. Again, you can Google those and check those numbers on your own if you missed that. Um, but that's, you know, not every plan is going to qualify for an HSA, right? So if you have a health insurance plan that you know your deductible is 500 bucks and your out-of-pocket max is a couple thousand like it's not going to be an hsa eligible plan and so there's some trade-offs and i guess we'll just take a quick step aside here just to talk about this some trade-offs with you know hsa plans and you know why would i consider this if you look at and there's different types of plans out there right you got hmos and ppos and epos the list goes on and on we're not going to have time to go through all that right now okay and i don't claim to be an expert on health insurance plans but i am very passionate about the hsa but if you have one of those other types of plans, typically your premium, which is the amount of money that you are paying to enroll in and be provided that plan to, to basically be part of that plan, is generally going to be a lot higher for a plan that you cannot have an HSA tied to. So you're going to pay more almost with certainty in the form of premiums. And if you're at work and enrolling through your workplace, that's going to be, you know, typically per paycheck. You're going to pay more per paycheck to be a part of that plan no matter what. And if you're relatively healthy, as we said at the beginning, and you know, you don't go to the doctor very often, you know, you don't have any chronic conditions that require expensive medications, things like that, um, you may inadvertently be paying more than you need to for that particular health insurance plan. The trade-off with the HSA, and the nice thing about it is if you are, again, one of those people that's generally healthy, you will pay typically a lot less in your ongoing premium. So to enroll in that plan and participate in that plan, the amount that comes out of your paycheck for your health insurance is actually going to be a lot lower. However, if shit hits the fan, as we, we don't have any filters here on Real Talk Personal Finance, if shit hits the fan and you do have something unexpected happen or a large medical expense, the way those plans are structured, as the name implies, 
you're going to be on the hook for a lot. You have a high deductible, which means cash out of your pocket is going to be fairly high. And therefore, because of that and because of the way these things are structured, that's one of the things or reasons that allows us to tie a health savings account to that plan. And that way there, if shit does hit the fan and you have money in an HSA, you can use it and you don't really have to worry about it. And I think the the biggest thing and the hardest thing for most people, like let's say you are relatively young, you're relatively healthy, you think this sounds great, you love the triple tax advantage, you want to get involved in the plan. I think the most fragile moment or or area for people here is the is the ones that their financial foundation is simply just not solid. You don't have an adequate emergency fund. Maybe you already have credit card debt. Maybe you're not good with managing your money. And I'm not trying to call anybody out. It is what it is, but let's just get real people, right? If that's you, that's not really a good spot to be in when you're just getting started. Well, it's not a good spot to be in in general, right? Let's face it. But it's not. It's especially not a good spot to be in when it comes to your HSA because now you're going to just be on this plan where you're responsible for more of the cost if things go south with your health or something unexpected happens, but yet you haven't necessarily had enough time to fund your HSA up to the point where it has enough money to cover those types of expenses. You know, remember we talked before about deductibles. Well, what if your deductible, you know, is say $3,000 and your employer gives you 500 bucks in an HSA and you're going to contribute some money over the year, but two months into the year when you've not had a chance to contribute all that much, you have an unexpected medical expense for 2500 Well, guess what? If your deductible is $3,000, you are responsible for that first 2500 But guess what? Your HSA has 500 bucks from your employer, which leaves you an outstanding balance of 2000 And a couple pennies that you put in, um, you're still going to be on the hook for you know a little less than $2,000. And again, if your fi- financial foundation is not very solid and you're dealing with credit card debt and other types of consumer debt, um, you, know, you could very well find yourself in a not very nice situation, right? So those are some things to think about in, in one of the areas where you know, people are most fragile. But once your financial foundation is solid um, and you are comfortable enrolling in one of these and you have at least a couple of years go by where hopefully you're getting some employer money, maybe you are, maybe you're not, but even if you're not, you're hopefully going to be max funding this on your own and you can build it up a little bit. It kind of takes the worry out of things, you know? <clears throat> Everybody handles that differently. Personally, you know, I like to keep, and I'm, I'm a pretty conservative when it comes to the HSA side of things. That'll come through a little bit later on in the call. But, uh, you know, I like to keep about two years of um, out-of-pocket max expenses in cash. And then the rest of it gets invested just in case, right? And yes, I have an adequate emergency fund. And, you know, my financial foundation is just fine. Um, but that's just personally my comfort level with an HSA. So anyway, everyone's going to be different. I digress. Um, let's get back on track here. Section <clears throat> three out of the five today contribution limits for 2022. So this is going to be pretty straightforward. $3,650 if you're single, $7,300 for a family. And if you're age 55 or older, you can add $1,000 to each of those numbers depending on how you're enrolling in your plan. I don't know if I want to go into this, but for anybody out there, I did stumble across this um, not too long ago. There is a pretty cool trick for something called domestic partners. Um, And so if you are living with somebody, you're in an exclusive relationship, an intimate relationship, you have you know shared financial responsibility, all those sorts of things. You're, for all intents and purposes, you're effectively married, even though you're not legally married. There are some uh, interesting rules for folks that are domestic partners, and not every employer recognizes domestic partners. A lot of the larger ones will, some of the smaller ones may not. But it's something to look into 
because there is kind of a loophole here with um, the ability to contribute to an HSA in terms of what the maximums are. And I don't want to get too far into that, but the vast majority of people listening to this are either going to fall into the single or the married category. There's probably not going to be a ton of people under the domestic partner. But if you are, you may want to do a little bit of research on your own because there is kind of a little hack or a little loophole where I'll just give you the teaser. Basically, you each of you can contribute up to the family maximum if you're on a shared plan together. So maybe you're not legally married, but you're planning on living together and have lived together for many, many years. And that's just the way things are going to go. As long as you are both on a shared plan uh, or a family plan, basically, uh, I shouldn't say family plan, as long as you're on a plan with at least one other person, doesn't necessarily have to be family because there are separate coverages for an individual versus an individual plus a spouse, sometimes individual plus domestic partner, and then a family plan. So I don't want to get those things confused. So if you are on with at least one other person, so your domestic partner in this example, then each of you would be eligible to contribute up to the family limit and basically double down on your HSA contributions collectively, which is kind of cool. The downside, and again, I'm not a tax expert. I don't pretend to be one. But there is something that you might want to be aware of, and that is the value of the benefits. So let's say you are the person that has the better benefits package of you and your domestic partner. Um, <clears throat> and so you put your domestic partner on your benefits package at work. You will have to pay imputed income tax on the value of the benefits that your domestic partner is getting on your plan that your employer is providing. And I know that's a mouthful, but most of the time the employer pays the brunt of the cost and we as the employees pay a little bit, right? But if you have somebody else on your plan and they're not your legal you know, spouse, you're not legally married, it's just your domestic partner, then you may have to worry about imputed income tax on that. So even though you get sort of the double down on the HSA limit, there's there's another kicker there. So it may or may not be worth it. You know, Again, that probably warrants further consideration. And you can check that out on, on your own time if that applies to you. But again, for most people, it won't. So we're just going to go ahead and move on. All right. Next, fourth category here. 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 Strategies for health savings accounts. And so there's a lot of different ones. I'm going to keep this one brief. If let's say you're married and both of you have access to an HSA, you typically want to have the older spouse be contributing to their plan because once you reach age 65, you can take a penalty-free distribution for any reason. And it effectively, the HSA account effectively becomes sort of a secondary or tertiary retirement plan. You would still have to pay taxes on the earnings. So it would kind of be like a traditional IRA when you get to that point. You would have to pay taxes on the earnings, but you wouldn't have to worry about that pretty hefty 20% penalty that you otherwise would have to pay if you used it for non-qualified expenses, right? So non-medical related expenses. So that's something else to keep in mind because if you put the money, the, the majority of the money in the in the older of the two spouses' plans, well, the one that turns 65 first is going to have that limitation removed sooner, right? If you hit 65 first, that 20% penalty that could potentially come into play is, is a non-issue. Now, ideally, you want to be using these plans only for qualified medical expenses. So some people may say, well, who gives a shit? It doesn't really matter. And you, there's some truth to that. But if you want to provide yourself with maximum flexibility, that's one idea. And I'm sure there are others, but again, I'm trying to keep this fairly short. So that's one thing to consider. The other big one that's going to tie into section or, or yeah, I guess category number five is something that's pretty widely debated 
in the FIRE community, the Financial Independence Retire Early community, regarding usages of HSAs. And what I mean by that, <coughs> excuse me, what I mean by that is some people will tell you that you should pretty much pay out of pocket for your medical expenses, max out your HSA, which in and of itself, that's a great idea, but max out your HSA and never touch it, and essentially just supercharge your retirement savings and have this secondary or tertiary retirement account available in the future for post-65 usage. And there's a lot of people that say, yeah, save your receipts for years and get, you know, get a binder and get a folder and just file them. And if you ever need money at any point in your life, you can just reimburse yourself tax-free from the HSA. And while technically that's true currently, it is sort of a loophole. And I don't think that was the intended use of the account. Now, that doesn't mean that somebody should or shouldn't do it. But one of the reasons that I think this isn't necessarily the best idea and one thing that pretty much nobody ever talks about is what are the implications if you were to inherit an HSA? If somebody dies and you're listed as the beneficiary, what happens? And I guarantee you the majority of people don't know the answer to that question. And the answer to that question, which I'm about to get into, may affect your decision on why you may choose to simply use your HSA as it's intended, which is to pay for your qualified medical expenses along the way and not try to just, you know, be the next person with the, you know, gazillion dollars in an HSA for the sake of having it there. Again, I'm all about flexibility and, and maximizing things and all that kind of stuff. But I think here, this is something that's often overlooked. So here we go. <clears throat> if your spouse, so, so let's assume you're married and your spouse is listed as the beneficiary on your HSA and you die. Your HSA simply becomes their HSA. That's it. Unlike retirement accounts where there's different rules, and of course that's one of them for a spousal beneficiary, but there's different types of beneficiaries and different types of rules and there used to be stretch provisions and there's some people that technically can still stretch, but now they have different classes of beneficiaries and some have to liquidate over a certain number of years. None of that's going to come into play with your health savings account. So if your beneficiary is your spouse and you die and you have an HSA, you have a health savings account, then your spouse, it basically becomes their HSA. Okay, And they can continue to use it for its intended purpose. No big deal, right, so far. But if somebody that's not a spouse is listed as your beneficiary, so let's say you know, you're know you single or you just list a non-spouse, which that's one consideration there and one reason to potentially not ever do that. <laughs> you want to have your spouse as your beneficiary for probably a lot of reasons, but this is one of them. Because at that point... If a non-spouse inherits your HSA, it becomes basically a regular taxable account and the entire value of the account is taxable as income to the beneficiary in the year that you die. Again, not tax advice, not a tax expert. If you don't believe me, look it up. And so <clears throat> all these people that want to build up these huge HSAs and pay their medical expenses out of pocket because they can afford to cash flow them, and that's fantastic. Uh, but again, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And that applies to a lot of things. And I think an HSA in this particular situation is one of them. So um, you want to think very carefully about that. Let's say you did have your spouse and all of a sudden you both died tragically in some kind of an accident, car, plane, whatever the case might be. Uh, hopefully you have a contingent on there. And if you do, whoops, you just ruin their day, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, it's it's nice, I guess, to, to inherit something, if you will, but not... Too many people want to just have a huge tax burden for those that are trying to build up these huge multi-hundred thousand dollar HSA accounts. Um, I think it's well-intentioned and, you know, again, just trying to kind of hack the system. I'm all about it. But 
in this situation, I think you could make a strong case for use the HSA for its intended purpose as needed. And then there's some additional benefits to doing that, um, especially for those that have had the opportunity to build these accounts up. Well, guess what? You, when you look at things like your emergency fund and your expenses, like you don't have to think about it anymore. I don't think about it anymore, right? I have a fairly, you know, substantial, nothing crazy, but nice chunk of change sitting in an HSA and I don't worry about medical expenses because I know I have multiple years of out-of-pocket maximums stacked up in that account that can come out completely tax-free and be used for their intended purpose. And, you know, I'm not going to spend money for the sake of spending money or incur a bunch of penalties or, you know, say, hey, you turn 65, there's no more penalty. Go ahead and liquidate the thing and, you know, you just pay the tax and don't worry about the penalty and go buy something cool. No, that's not what we're saying here. But what we are saying is that you might want to, you know, just do a, a quick check on whether or not you really want to pay all of your medical expenses out of pocket, never reimburse yourself from your HSA because you want to have this just gigantic retirement account in the future because the reality is, you know, it may not work out like you want it to. Nothing wrong with retirement plans, real big fan of those. We'll have other episodes about all that stuff, but there are very different rules for inheriting those than there are for inheriting an HSA. So the bottom line here is that you probably don't want to have somebody other than your spouse inherit your HSA, so use the damn thing as needed and enjoy the triple tax savings that we talked about at the beginning of the episode. So basically at this point, we've gone just over 25 minutes and we're going to go ahead and get out of here. Thank you for joining the Cashflow King today at Real Talk Personal Finance. We will see you in the next episode. Check the mic and make sure it sound right, boys.